This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now on The Law School Show. Welcome, friends, to The Law School Show. Our guest today is Mark Asfar. He's a young lawyer here with us in Ottawa, working for a similarly young firm called Momentum Business Law. He joined the firm in 2016, first as a 2L summer student, then as an articling student, and now as a full-fledged lawyer after completing both his bachelor's degree and his Juris Doctor at Queen's University in Kingston, where he was remarkably involved in campus and community life. Mark, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Well, we're glad to have you here. Uh, Mark, we've known each other for a while. I mean, we met at Queen's, but it's probably safe to say that we became friends once you were already in law school. So I'm curious about the years that preceded that. At what point in your life did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm one of those insufferable kids uh, who figured out that they wanted to go to law school when they were strangely young. Sometime around the age of 10 or 11, someone noticed that I was a uh, belligerent, argumentative little pain in the neck and uh, informed me that I could get paid for a living to do that. And when I asked what this magical, perfect profession was, I was told that it was being a lawyer. Uh, and ever since then, I've wanted to be a lawyer. So I was that that 13-year-old coming out of junior high who was like dead set on law school. I always knew this is what I wanted to do. I'm truly a dream job uh, for someone with that. I, I, I very much identify with that set of characteristics. That, um, <laughs> that makes sense. So you, you knew going into, uh, you did history at Queens for your undergrad, correct? Yep. Yeah, I, uh, I went into uh, undergrad and uh, like so many, you know, 18 uh, year olds going out to school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And it's kind of funny, I actually uh, thought about applying for business school at Queens. Initially, I had really uh, significant interest in business. But, um, you know, and sort of weighing my options, I also had a, a passion for history and humanities. And I figured in my mind that law school was always the goal and that once I got to law school, that was the real world for me. I was going to be very dedicated to studying and it was going to be the real commitment. And so I figured I wanted to spend my undergrad developing just sort of my general understanding of the world and my, my soft skills. So I, I went and studied history um, and I had kind of an interesting history path even then. I, um, my specialization in history was in military and feminist history and the intersection thereof. Interesting. Uh, how, how do you... I guess I, I kind of have two questions from that. Firstly, how did you find the uh, military and feminist history in particular exposed you to different ideas or different ways of thinking about history that that may have still been useful even now uh, that a regular kind of you know run of the mill history degree may not have exposed you to, if anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was one. It was a hugely fascinating area and, and sections of history to study, and two, it, it taught me to look in sort of the uh, the more interesting areas of research to look where things weren't obvious and to make connections. Uh, so one of my, my specialties for my, my undergrad degree is actually World War II um, and Canadian women's involvement in the war. Uh, and it's actually a very uh, little known part of our, our national history, but uh, during World War II, women served in the military, not as nurses, as many people primarily attribute women's service to, um, but actually, during the manpower shortages in World War II, women were recruited to serve in non-combat roles in the military and worked as engineers repairing you know, tanks and uh, military equipment or in uh, logistics and operational capacities. Um, 
then it's super interesting. Women during those periods actually um, were deemed to have outperformed men. There's an amazing uh, quote from a Canadian general that says, uh, for every Canadian woman, I'd give up five of my men uh, because they're that good. Um, so it's a super interesting piece of history, but no one ever talks about it. It's very, uh, very hard to, to find out about. Uh, there's not a lot of information available. And so while learning and studying that topic in history and a bunch of others, I learned to uh, sort of do interesting research to look where, you know, it might be less obvious and to make connections in the historical record that you wouldn't see otherwise. And that's been actually kind of a recurring helpful skill in law, because in law, a lot of the times, uh, the research and the pieces you're looking for to answer questions aren't obvious, uh, especially once you get into real practice, you know, uh, when you're dealing with novel issues of law and questions from clients, there isn't a handy uh, textbook that answers all the questions your clients are going to have. There isn't a handy set of articles online that will give you all your answers in one place. You have to sort of piece things together. You have to learn how to research and how to make logical leaps that are consistent with actual reality. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoyed that undergrad and I find the skills that I picked up from it in research and, and reasoning to be still very valuable. I, I, I want to also ask you, this was perhaps on a, on a more personal note, um, but with respect to that undergraduate degree, I, I was in a similar position uh, in my undergrad uh, doing classical studies, so also you know, history of a sort, but just very, very old um, and, and perhaps a little less relevant to uh, today's life. Um, but knowing going in that it was kind of a stepping stone to law school eventually, that's where I wanted to end up. Um, and I'm asking this kind of on behalf of those friends I have who are still in their undergrad or, or just the people who, uh, who I know, who I've met, who are hoping to get to law school. Uh, but who are struggling sometimes in a degree that isn't what they want to do uh, might be interesting to them, but but is kind of a sometimes feels like a slog to get through in order to actually get to their actual law degree that they that they're really excited about. How did you maintain the motivation to do well uh, as you did in in your undergrad program while also recognizing that that history wasn't the thing you wanted to end up doing? Uh, I mean, so part of it was it was easier for me to do well because I I did love history. I actually really found it so fascinating. It was a passion of mine. And that was my my choice that I made when I went into school was that business was an interest, but was probably going to be a bit of a slog for me because a lot of it wasn't stuff that I planned to use, whereas history was purely a passion project for me. And so for those people who I hear making those strategic choices, I've had that conversation with so many um you know, students who are planning to go to law school of, oh, should I take, you know, philosophy instead of politics because it'll be better for the LSAT down the road? Or, oh, should I take this business program instead of English because it'll look better on my law school application? Uh, so my answer to those folks is, one, no, you, you should never pick uh, a program purely based on its perceived prestige, particularly with law schools in Canada now, my understanding from the conversations I've had with admissions is that they are looking for strong grades that demonstrate that you're academically uh, talented and able to commit to the law school you know, regime, basically, um, and an overall track of excellence. They're looking at your overall history. They don't care about the individual prestige of your program. So I would say go for the thing that you are interested in that you can do day in and day out, and ideally have that be a thing that you're also decently good at. Um, you know, if your passion is 
English, but you can't string a, an essay together, maybe don't make that your major. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that was what I did it for me was I, I love what I was doing on its own. And then I always had the plan of going to law school. That was a big driver for me as well. So even on the, the couple of classes, because you do have a couple of classes here and there that are brutal, you know, not a good professor teaching it, or it's just subject matter that you don't want to deal with, but it's a mandatory uh, you just keep pushing through. I always remembered that law school was the ultimate goal for me, and I just pushed, pushed, pushed as best as I can. Uh, and yeah, and it, thankfully for me, it worked out, and I'm still grateful for that to this day. Getting my my offer to law school was you know, one of the happiest days in my life when that first offer came through, because I knew I was going to be able to make it. Now, the other thing that you mentioned is is in terms of, of that passion. One of the other areas in which you were heavily involved, and probably the way that you and I got to know each other was through extracurriculars. I mean, you were uh, or we, we were both tour guides. You were, I think, a tour guide for a record-breaking amount of time at, at Queens uh, from benefit of doing two degrees there. Um, but you were also heavily involved in debating. You were the administration manager of the Student Life Center. Um, we worked together on the Senate Committee overseeing non-academic discipline, but you were there because you were at the time uh, vice president of the Law Student Society. You were managing that entire portfolio at the same time. In 2014, you were awarded the Agnes Benedictson Tricolor Award, which is the highest non-academic honor bestowed by Queens uh, for this extracurricular life. Do you feel that those extracurriculars contributed to who you are, helped prepare you for law school, helped prepare you for a career in the legal world, or did they just kind of make your undergrad uh, a little more fun? What, what was the impact of those? Man, when you read those back to me, I'm exhausted just listening. That's, uh, <laughs> God... Uh, time flies. It does. Honestly, so extracurriculars, uh, when, when people ask me, you know, what, what worked, what didn't, extracurriculars are probably my favorite part of my university experience. And I think they were absolutely the most valuable uh, part of my university experience. Extracurriculars were both something that was very fun for me to do, but they were also an incredible way to learn new skills, to meet new people, to discover uh, you know, real things about the world that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to in the classroom. Um, so yeah, in, in debate, I learned logical reasoning and I learned to think on my feet and to clearly communicate my ideas and my, my positions. In the different student jobs I worked, I learned about realities of business operations, of team management, of personnel and things like that. Um, even just the day-to-day -day of showing up to do a, a pretty simple job like being a tour guide, which was a lot of fun. I learned about things like basic conflict management, managing a schedule, uh, you know, just showing up on time and doing the work even when the weather sucks and you don't really want to. And uh, those sound like simple skills and sound like obvious things, but I think that they're hugely valuable skills um, in so many ways. Law school itself is possibly one of the hardest things uh, a young person can do. I still remember hitting law school, even with all those skills in my back pocket, just being exhausted for the first year because there's so much happening. You're learning what is effectively a new language and new way of thinking. You're engaging with your peers. You're trying to network with professionals so that you can begin to size up your prospects for a legal career. Um, you're attending lectures. You're trying to do your readings. You also want to be part of extracurriculars so that you can bond with your colleagues and your classmates. There's so many things happening at once and there's so many skills involved in each of them if you want to be successful at them and, and get the most out of it. So having that experience from extracurriculars prior was hugely helpful in trying to get more out of my law school degree. And even now, in practice, I'm a, I'm a lawyer practicing in Ottawa now, and it's it's very much the same. It's it's kind of funny when you're when you're leaving law school, you think, oh, it's 
it's all going to be different. You know, real practice is going to look different. It isn't. It's fundamentally the same. It's my days consist of waking up at a an hour in the morning, getting into work, you know, doing research and reading, sending off emails to clients, getting on the phone and chatting with them, going to meetings. In the evenings, it consists of going to networking events and trying to make, you know, uh, contact with people, forge you know, relationships and uh, rapport. So it's, it's all fundamentally the same stuff. So getting that experience earlier on in those environments was huge and has been helpful ever since. And my, my first recommendation to people who want to go to law school is always, you know, don't neglect your extracurriculars. We think so much about the LSAT and having a good grade point average, but extracurriculars are something that admissions think about. And more importantly, there's something that could be hugely helpful to you personally. That makes sense. Obviously, though, for some students, it might be difficult to get involved at, at, at certain moments. Um, I want to actually bring you back a bit of a flash from the past. Um, February 2014, um, you wrote an article for the Queen's Journal about accessibility issues surrounding getting involved in student government. Um, as you may know, the University of Ottawa right now is reassessing its own student government system. Um I don't really want to get too much into what's going on, but given that such a massive part of extracurricular opportunities on campuses, or at the very least at Queen's, uh, originate from student governments, what do you think is important to consider in order to ensure that as many students as possible are able to access these opportunities? And on the other side, to ensure that student governments are as representative as they can be and are able to uh, take the, the best and the brightest from those students? That's a, that's a heavy question. I mean, on the student's end, um, it's my belief that students, while they should absolutely go in and be engaged, they should always, uh, one, treat their engagement um, seriously and respectfully. There's, a, there's sometimes an attitude in, in schools for students who are going into extracurriculars that they're like, oh, this is a school-based uh, ac extracurricular activity job, so it's not really serious. I think you should take it seriously if you're going to do something, if you're signing up for a job, if you're going into student government. I think that's important. I think the flip side for individuals is that you should also not overload yourself. You should uh, learn your limits and accept that you have limits. There's so much pressure these days for students and aspiring law students and law students in particular to be perfect, to be able to do 15 different things at once and not stop and not sleep and also get grades and also get into law school and also get a great job. That's very difficult and it's very stressful and it's a recipe for burnout and disaster. Uh, and I think one of the most valuable skills for students these days is to learn your limits, learn about self-care uh, and learn to balance things, uh, to not do all the extracurriculars at once because you don't have to and you really, quite frankly, can't. Um, you read off my my list of engagement earlier on in the the, the discussion we're having here, and uh, it sounds pretty lengthy and might sound like it contradicts what I'm saying. But those commitments happened over the course of seven years. Uh, you know, I wasn't doing all of those things at once; they were stretched out. And I took days off, and I stepped back from things when I was feeling burnt out. And uh, one of the skills I learned in that process was how to say no to new projects because. I wouldn't be able to do them justice. I wouldn't be able to uh, respectfully give it my best. And uh, I needed time to, to take care of myself. And I learned to recognize that. As for the student governments themselves, I, uh, I think that, yeah, student, student governments are always going to be a little bit of a, a challenging 
uh, thing to run and to operate. They're complex organizations with lots of uh, traffic, lots of in and out year over year. The turnover is very high. Um, I mean, if they want to engage more students, if they want to get better at creating opportunities for students, I think the challenge is uh, quite significant, but they can begin to address it by bringing their best. You know, I think student government leaders have to uh, bring their very best conduct and do work very hard um, and figure out their own lives in the process. And it's not easy, but I think it is a balance that can be struck. Um, and I find that the issues that occur in student governments usually stem from people um, you know, uh, treating it casually and not thinking about those issues. Well, that makes sense. Um, I, I want to ask you a little more about that uh, burnout topic that you mentioned briefly here in extracurriculars and also hinted that a little bit with respect to academics, how you're, you're effectively in that first year just completely changing the way um, you think. What would your advice be to a, a first-year student coming into law school uh, and trying to decide you know, seeing everything that's open to them, all the opportunities and wanting to get involved in absolutely everything, but trying to decide how much to you know, balance school and extracurriculars and potentially work if they need to, to you know, earn some money to afford law school and also just life, living, sleep, eating, that kind of those necessities. How, how would you suggest that they consider that balance? So I have a lot of friends who are going into law school now and, um, I have the, the gift of hindsight being a few years ahead of them, and I'm getting to give them the advice that I wish I had received back in the day. And uh, my number one piece of advice for them was always pace yourself. Pick one or two things that you're going to do, especially in your first year of law school, which is the hardest for those who haven't realized that already. It is the hardest. That's good to hear. Um, That's good. I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. It, get, it gets better, guys. It gets better. I promise. Um so, you know, in your first year, pick one or two things, pick like one significant extracurricular, you know, I'm not talking about those silly law school clubs that meet twice a year. That's not a significant, you know, uh, commitment really, but pick one, you know, sort of one significant law thing that you want to do outside of the classroom. Pick a second thing. If you think you have capacity in my first year of law school, I was a legal aid clinic volunteer, which was, you know, a decent amount of commitment. I was in the clinic a couple hours each week as well as uh, a tour guide. So I had a part-time job in my first year still. Um, and then stick to your academics and try to carve out time for the socializing and the other events when you can, when you have capacity. Um, there's some people who go in and they, they want to join three significant extracurriculars that are going to eat up you know, 10 hours a week of their time. And 10 hours a week might sound like, oh, that's less than a part-time job even. That's, that's nothing. That's easy. But you are doing so many readings in first year. You have so much class to attend. You have so many other commitments. You want to socialize. You want to make friends. Um, there's just so much stuff happening. And it's so easy to find yourself cutting into your sleep or cutting into healthy eating or cutting into your, your mental health by beating up on yourself for not being able to do it all. And it's, it's just not worth it. And I think those things hurt you so much more in the long run than missing out on any of these extracurriculars. So my advice is this rule of three. One thing is a major extracurricular. One thing that's, you know, maybe another law extracurricular or a different kind of extracurricular. I'm a big fan of having non-law things in your life. And have a third thing being your academics that you focus on and just squeeze in time where you can for socialization. But you don't even have to be at every event. You know, you don't have to go to every mixer, to every uh 
academic lecture to every optional mingling event at the school. You know, go to what you can, but recognize that when you get home some days and you're just feeling burnt out, just fried, you don't want to look at a book, you don't want to open a computer, you can't even, you know, read a book for yourself. You just want to sit down in front of the TV and put on some Netflix and binge Brooklyn Nine-Nine until you fall asleep on the couch. That's okay. That happened to all of us. We all did it. I burned through so much garbage television in my first year in my downtime. And one, that's great for the pop culture references. I feel very hip. And two, <laughs> it was absolutely necessary to my mental health and my sanity while I was making it through that first year because it is so challenging. I My favorite anecdote of what's wrong with first year is I still remember, this is the story I tell, uh, getting my first case in public law at Queen's Law. And it was a case uh, about an individual who was trying to uh, sue the government. Uh, I remember this vividly, trying to sue the Ontario government for not closing hospitals during the SARS outbreak, I think. Something ridiculous. It's, it's like a five-page decision. It's not a long decision in any capacity. And I remember reading this for the first time in like month one of law school, and it took me maybe an hour and a half. And I remember sitting there reading this thing, being like, what is this? Am I supposed to read this quickly? Is everyone else getting this and I'm just not getting it? How do I even look at this? And just being overwhelmed and stressed out. Fast forward, you know, uh, like six or seven months to the end of the second term. I'm doing review now for everything. And uh, I'm looking through my notes and I pull out this, this five-page case and I decide to reread it. And within 10 minutes, I've read the case. So I know exactly what you know, the, the fact pattern is and all the details of it. And my brain, the light bulb coming on above my brain sort of going, oh, I get it now. My brain has been trained. I can read these so much more quickly, so much more efficiently. Like first year is you're rewiring your brain. You're literally teaching yourself a new language, a new set of skills, a new way to see the world. It is exhausting uh, and it's incredibly rewarding <laughs> at the end, but so much happens in that period. And it's such a, an interesting and challenging time. I want to ask you about that law school uh, experience. Um, wh what did you think going into law school would be your area of interest? Did you, did you think immediately, I mean, I know you mentioned that you had some interest in business um, in undergrad, uh, but did you think you'd end up at uh, Momentum Business Law or did you kind of have no idea what you were going to end up practicing? Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Join me on the winding journey of my experience. Happy to. <laughs> finding, finding my legal career. <laughs> so when I went to law school, initially, like so many bright young minds, I thought to myself, I want to argue for a living. I want to stand up in court wearing those beautiful barrister's robes, and I want to defend justice as we know it. I want to be a criminal lawyer. Ah. Uh, then I took first year crim, and probably around week three, I walked out and I went, nope, that's not <laughs> what I'm going to do. <laughs> Uh, because it was dark and it was depressing and there was no world in which I could see myself comfortably doing the defense side of it. And um, yeah, it just didn't add up for me. So after realizing that my dreams of being a criminal lawyer were uh, going to need to be changed, I kept an open mind and I went through the rest of my first year of law school. Uh, and we take sort of the generic foundational courses, contract, property, etc., and so at the end of first year, I was looking at all the things I took. I kind of enjoyed property and contract and tort. 
but didn't really know what to do with it. You know, there's a difference between being a, a tort lawyer and between being a, like a commercial corporate lawyer. So going into second year, I took some more courses and I ended up taking uh, employment and labor law early on in my second year. And I found them quite interesting. It seemed to involve, you know, some courtroom litigation options, dealt with people's issues and sort of about helping them as well as working with businesses, which brought back my old interest about business. And uh, this was looking kind of interesting to me. And I signed up for a labor moot my second year and I did the labor moot. I was beginning to think, maybe I'm going to be uh, an employment or a labor lawyer. And then I, I went and did the labor moot and I took the, the labor course and uh, I had some experiences with that and it just still wasn't sticking. Some stuff about it just you know wasn't appealing to me. I, it didn't really work for me entirely. And I was really lost. I was trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do in law? What am I getting this degree for? And then finally, uh, by some miracle, I ended up taking business associations, uh, which was mandatory, thank God, at Queen's. So, well, so that, that was uh, the miracle then, I guess, is the mandation yes. of the court. I mean, I could have been uh, a real, uh, I mean, it could have made a real mistake and gone and taken it in third year. And that would have been a true tragedy because that would have even delayed this farther. But so at the end of second year, I'm now more than halfway through my law degree. I finally take um, business associations, which I believe the folks at U of O know as, um, is it BizOrg? I think it might be that sounds uh, vaguely familiar. Yeah, and I think that's what you guys have. But I haven't got there yet, so I, I can, you know, I can affirm that in a year's time. <laughs> well, let me tell you now, Ryan, take Bizorg as soon as humanly possible, because I took business associations at Queens and went to like this by the second lecture. Basically, I was sitting there looking at a, at the class. We, it was just a large lecture; it was about 120 of us in there, and half the class is looking ultra confused. And, you know, the, the next like 45% of the class seems to be getting it. And there's 5% of the class, me included, who is just sitting there, big grin on the face, keenly nodding, like, oh, this makes sense. <laughs> uh, and thus begins my dark descent into corporate law. <laughs> your, your dark descent. Why, why, was it, uh, why was it the dark descent? Well, this is just my joke. I, you know, people hear that you're a corporate solicitor and they give you this look like, oh, you work for the man. You work for the evil corporations uh, is sort of the general impression of business lawyers. Uh, and that's not true. Uh, for anyone who's about to accuse me of that, rush to Twitter and at me. Uh, heads up. I work with small businesses and startups. I'm not working for any you know, international evil conglomerates. I, I work for local mom and pops mostly. Um, so you can have a career in corporate and business law and you know, not sell your soul to the devil if that's what you want to call it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so at the end of my second year, I figured out that I liked business associations and I actually thrived in that course, learning about corporate law and business transactions and structuring. My brain was just suited for it. So I sort of rediscovered my old passion for business from my pre-undergrad days even and realized, hey, you know, that passion that I had all these years ago that I kind of forgot about, it's actually the thing in law that might be the perfect fit for me. Uh, so at that point, I, uh, I actually summered for Momentum Business Law. Um, I had uh, applied for them during the Ottawa OCI period. I'd seen their their sort of advertisement and their firm website, and I kind of fell in love with the firm, which I can talk about a little bit more later. But uh, I ended up summering in business law and loving every minute of it and just getting into it so much. And then I went back to law school for third year. And my third year was uh, 
catch up. I sort of had spent my first half of my law degree uh, pinging around from subject to subject, taking labor and employment and you know, mediation and all kinds of weird stuff, just trying to figure out what I liked. And now I knew, and I just packed my third year with every corporate law class I could get my greedy little bits on. So I was taking uh, securities, advanced mergers and acquisitions, corporate governance. I was just packing in anything I could on the subject matter because I wanted to make sure I'd get every piece of the, the puzzle that I could before I, I left law school. Was that the point when you started becoming interested in startups and tech and and that kind of intersection or was that earlier later how did that line up i mean it's uh, finding your path is an intersection of a lot of things that were always there uh, that you just didn't realize so i have always been a big damn nerd i've always <laughs> loved technology i've always been fascinated by startups um you know, even from the earliest days, I still remember being an undergrad. I built my own computer. I loved gaming. I loved knowing about the latest tech and what tech companies were doing. Um, I loved to follow the startup world and the interesting companies that were making moves and how they are positioning themselves in product markets. You know, I'm the guy who sits at a party next to someone and says, you know, have you heard about this cool new app? Have you heard about this cool new company? Have you seen what these guys are doing in this space? These are conversations I always loved. And I just figured that's my hobby. These are things I do in my spare time. Uh, similarly to business, I was always interested in some of the bigger workings of the business world, but I didn't really do anything with it practically that would feel like it fit into my, my career. And then suddenly I realized I liked business law. And I said, oh, well, this is a whole area that I could be in that would actually be really interesting and compelling to me on a day-to-day -day basis. And then, you know, the the subsequent realizations start occurring. Oh, you know, business law involves really interesting companies, not just big companies, but startups. And oh, that can mean tech. And the fundamentals of, of tech companies are good commercial contracts and good business advice. And it all sort of clicks together all at once. And you realize, oh, this is it. This is the thing I'm supposed to be doing. Like, this makes sense. I could do this day in and day out. And even when it's boring, it won't really be that boring for me. Um, so that's sort of the realization and it's, you know, people talk about it all the time, that aha moment when you find what you're supposed to do. And I always thought it was kind of trite and silly, but you know, you get what you deserve. I realized it was actually true and it, it happened for me a little bit late in the game, but you know, thankfully not too late in the game or never at all. And that was the realization. The other thing for me was getting into momentum business law, my, my firm. Uh, so when I joined momentum, uh, it was sort of a, a scrappy small firm that was still in its early heyday. And it works primarily with startups and small business. And there was just a great fit uh, that happened there. So when I showed up, they were sort of training me and educating me in this in this world and business law as well as startups and small businesses. And I was passionate. And they helped me fully realize that passion about that. They helped me realize that this was a, a thing I could do with a career. So what has that, that experience been like? I mean, Momentum is, is both a small firm and a relatively new firm. Um, and you joined the team, obviously, when it was still uh, relatively new. So what's the experience been like as a summer student, as an articling student? Uh, you mentioned the ability for them to, to kind of teach you, to mentor you um, through those early years. Would you recommend that other young lawyers or, or young soon-to-be lawyers consider joining smaller firms over those those larger firms? Yeah, so this is going to be a controversial subject depending on who you ask, um, but I'll, I'll plant my flag in the ground right now. I am a huge advocate of small firms uh, 
both in the market and for students. Small firms are great, and not to say that large firms don't educate their students and don't give them resources and opportunities, and in fact, they probably have access to resources and opportunities that small firms would never have. But small firms are incredible because they don't have so many hands on deck, because they don't have you know, as many clerks, as many assistants, as many supports and resources. It means that when students join small firms and they have that opportunity, they become an integral part of the team from day one. Uh, and it means that the lawyers who are there who have experience are able to usually dedicate more time and are certainly incentivized to get, dedicate more time to training and educating those students and creating value in them. So when I joined Momentum, uh, from day one, I was sitting in on client meetings. I was drafting and reviewing key documents that were going to clients. Uh, my memos were literally being put in front of our clients to answer their questions, just as a summer student. Um, anytime I had questions, anytime I was learning a new process or a new area of law, I could always go and sit down with my mentor or with another lawyer at the firm and say, hey, I'm trying to understand this thing. Do you have a few minutes? And they were incredibly giving of their time. Part of that's the culture. Our firm is very oriented towards um, supporting each other in mentorship and education. Um, we take interns almost every semester from U of O. We try to hire summer students anytime we even have a, a portion of the capacity to do so. You know, Even when we don't really need one, we try to bring one in to be able to give someone that experience. And when those students are there, you know, we try to sit them down and involve them in every aspect of practice so that they can learn the ropes and hopefully pick up new pieces. Um, but a huge part of that is still fundamentally that we're a small firm and you have to be involved in those things, that there isn't a lot of busy work to do. We're not going to send you to the facts. We're not going to send you to pick up coffees. We want you actively doing work and being involved. And that's a huge part of the growth. Um, I learned a lot in school from classes and from lectures and from readings, but I learned so much more as a part of real practice by being involved with clients and being in conversations and strategy meetings with other lawyers. Um, and it's effectively its own education. I, I never went to business school. I was, I'm a history grad. And then I went to law school and I took some business law courses. But the amount I've learned about actual business, about how businesses run, about structuring and thinking about it and the strategies and how that whole world exists and breathes and lives, uh, it's effectively a, a business degree that I've gotten just by existing at this firm, just by listening, just by asking questions and just by interacting. And I understand um, Momentum was also the, the source from which you drew uh, to sign, which is the, the startup the, from the legal hackathon that you're now the CEO of. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how that developed, uh, the philosophy behind that kind of company and, and where you see its role in the broader legal sphere? Yeah, sure. So um, Tucson was a project I worked on about a year and a bit ago um, for something called the Global Legal Hackathon. Um, it's a pretty cool event that's uh, now being hosted annually, I believe. It was its first year, so we have to see what, what the plan is for this year still. But um, it's basically an event that's meant to bring together lawyers across the globe and people who are interested in law across the globe to create innovation in legal practice and technology. Um, I founded a team here in Ottawa of uh, a few IBM engineers and some local U of O students and other people who are interested. And we created a, an app 
that's meant to help uh, average users, uh, the public, with their contracts. We saw an issue where people were entering into handshake oral contracts all the time, and they effectively weren't recording it correctly or weren't structuring it correctly. And the result was that when the contract was breached, parties were usually left without any kind of recourse, uh, any sort of remedy for their, their damages. Uh, because oral contracts are actually binding, as you might have learned in law school, but uh, they're very hard to enforce because the proof of the record is always the issue. So we created a smart app that was designed for people to hold out their phone, tell the phone the general terms of the deal, that would then structure it into a written contract automatically and let people agree to the contract and make it binding with a digital record that could be used for enforcement later on. It's kind of a novel concept. Um, I, we founded it at a the legal hackathon uh, event. So there was an event here in Ottawa that was basically a weekend of trying to slap together this thing and, and pitch it and present it. We had a lot of fun with it. We ended up going to New York for the global finals to uh, to present our idea. Oh, wow. Yeah, we, we made it pretty far in the process. So we, we made it to New York to present um, and had a lot of uh, a lot of fun and uh, a lot of opportunity to learn about how, to, how these things happen. It's actually kind of funny. The two signs now on hold, our group has, you know, gone on to the next part of our careers. Part of the challenge with having a, a very young team of students and early lawyers is that, uh, you know, your careers are happening and you've got other stuff you're working on. But it was um, definitely a lot of fun uh, and something I, I don't regret doing in any capacity. And um, it's part of the, the continuing growth process. Even when you're out and practicing law, it's still a great idea to get out there and try new things and take on new projects and passions. Uh, and so this was a chance to sort of stretch my, my tech and uh, logical thinking muscles and to try something else. Uh, it was also a very cool way to get involved in the legal innovation world. And this is uh, getting sort of into the, the lesser known parts of law, but a lot of lawyers uh, and even law students look at law as this monolith that's been practiced a certain way for so many years, for decades, for centuries, uh, and it doesn't change. It's immutable. We practice the same way we did then as now. And that's not the case. Innovation is coming to law, but very slowly. You know, we use Microsoft Word now. We're not still hand drafting or typewriting things. Hallelujah. Although I have heard stories of lawyers who are uh, still using typewriters and it horrifies me. Oh my goodness. Um, but law, law is slow. We're very slow. We are innovating, but incredibly slowly. There's a lot of lawyers I've talked to. The most exciting innovation in the world to them is that they have a smartphone in their pocket now, or that they can load up some of their, their criminal code onto a tablet to bring into the court. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. That technology is 10 to 15 years old now. You know, that's, that's not innovation. That's You're catching up to the back end of the curve. So um, there is innovation happening. It's kind of an interesting part of the legal world. There's a small niche group of people who are trying to create software and applications and systems that solve uh, issues of inefficiency in our profession. People who are trying to cut down the time we spend uh, figuring out billing or the amount of time we spend sifting through documents and due diligence or the amount of time it takes just to populate a starting draft of an agreement. There's a lot of cool stuff out there, um, and it's a, a lot of cool stuff that also creates alternative careers. So, you know, we're, when you're in law school, or certainly when you're applying to law school, all you can think about is, I want to be a lawyer, I want to practice law. And that usually looks like a couple of things in your mind. It usually means going to court and being a barrister or, you know, sitting in large meetings and being a solicitor. 
but there's a bunch of law adjacent fields that need lawyers as well. So, you know, going to uh, work to advise companies as in-house counsel, uh, developing legal consultation services, mediation services, arbitration, and even further out, you know, developing legal software and support services. Uh, so there are a lot of lawyers who are leaving the standard practice of law and their new profession is enhancing the practice of law, providing support services and products that make lawyers better and more efficient and so that they can pass those benefits on to their clients. Any areas in particular where you think that that the, uh, the time is ripe for some new tech to come in and, and fill the gap? Any projects on the horizon? Well, uh, I think part of it for me is that uh, I, I actually already do this at Momentum. So uh, I'm going to plug us right now. So Momentum being the small scrappy firm it is, uh, you know, where we do law differently we're a young firm with a lot of uh, you know young minds and people who are keen about innovation, and we like to disrupt and try different things uh, a lot. So one thing that we do is that we really push legal innovation software at our firm. If we hear about something that could speed up our processes even a little bit, we implement it and we try it almost immediately. So we have you know like six different softwares that we we run on the back end that change how we operate our our firm and our practice. Um, and we actually have a, uh, a VC wing to the firm called Momentum Law Labs that goes and invests in legal innovation at startups. Oh, wow. So uh, we're actually actively using innovation software. We're usually also actively involved in feedback and development of that software. So, you know, once every other month, I'm in a, an hour long meeting where we sort of give feedback to these folks on how we're using their software, what we want to see, what developments they need to make for it to be better for us that usually get implemented. And we're actively investing and supporting uh, in them as well. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting um, environment at the firm and we get to be involved in, in those parts of it um, pretty actively. You've also just, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but, but Momentum has just started a cannabis incubator as well, which uh, again appears to have that kind of heavy tech focus. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about why Momentum got involved in, in that relatively new space and how technology is being used to make the law both more effective and, and accessible to the, the cannabis entrepreneurs? Absolutely. Um, so we got involved in cannabis um, more significantly recently. We worked with cannabis clients originally as early as 2016. So when I joined the firm as a summer student, we already had cannabis clients in the early days who were you know, setting up to produce medical cannabis and sell it. Um, we've gotten more and more cannabis clients since. We find them to be uh, a really interesting type of client. It's uh, an innovative, new, emerging industry. And the clients in it are usually uh, you know, rebels and mavericks. They come to open up and set up a business, but they usually have a spirit of... Uh, entrepreneurial innovation and uh, motivation to them. And they bring a lot of fun to it. So we, we like working with these clients. We've worked with more and more of them over the years. And now that cannabis is legal, um, the industry has just opened up overnight. There's so many people who want to get in and produce cannabis or process it or turn it into food or drink or who want to sell it um, legally, of course. And so we want to be able to support these, these new businesses and help them set up and be successful. Part of this is that in a new industry like this that's opened up you know, just in the last few months, uh, it's very hard to get information. Everyone's trying to innovate. Everyone's trying to create a new successful model. Uh, and it feels for a lot of people like they're constantly reinventing the wheel. And it can be quite stressful. 
when you add in all the other regulations that are emerging and uh, the need to figure out what works and what doesn't, it's there's a lot of uh, a lot of challenge. So what we're trying to do is basically create a way for people in the space for these innovators and entrepreneurs to collaborate and to not feel like they have to start from scratch every time, but be able to share best practices, to discuss, to work together, to understand the regulations and to create feedback on them. Uh, so we created an online incubator space that allows cannabis entrepreneurs to uh, basically sign up and join. And it creates one community hub where they can communicate with each other as well as with the lawyers at the firm. So uh, we're all members of the Canvas Incubator. And when Canvas Incubator members are talking to each other about, you know, what's the best way for me to uh, submit these regulations or submit my licenses for the regulations? What's the best way for me to set up point of sale? What's the best way for me to track product in a regulation compliant way? We have the clients engaging with each other and talking about it and sharing best practices. But we as lawyers can also pop into these conversations online and say, hey, you know, uh, here's what you need to know about the regulations or, oh, we've heard this from some other clients. You should take this into consideration when you're making your decisions. So it's a really cool collaborative um, system that we've set up a sort of online digital space. And uh, we're hoping that it creates a lot of value and uh, makes our, our clients and our uh, entrepreneurial friends' lives a little bit easier. Well, I wish you guys the best of luck with that. Um, the last question I had, uh, obviously, I'm very grateful to you for joining us today, uh, but you also recently returned to Queens uh, as a guest speaker uh, at the Queens Venture Law Society launch event, both in this podcast and in going and speaking to, uh, to the Queens Venture Law Society and in your other work, what is the importance to you of giving back to the communities that you were once part of, that passing on that knowledge to the people who were in your shoes several years ago? Oh, it's, it is hugely important uh, to give back. Uh, as you have obviously, I think, seen, and as so many other uh, law students and aspiring law students have seen, the legal community is an incredibly tight-knit community. There is a really important value instilled in all of us from day one that this is our community and that you can rely on the community to get support, to get advice, to get mentorship, and that when you have the opportunity, you should also give back to the community and give advice and support and mentorship anytime you can. So for me, uh, when I was going through as a pre-law student, as a law student, even now as an early lawyer, um, being able to talk to other people in the profession and get advice on legal questions, on um, best practices, just you know, to chat about what it means to be a lawyer is hugely invaluable. And whenever I can, I, I always want to be able to do that for others. So whether it's going back to the alma mater to talk about what it means to be a lawyer, what it means to be in um, innovation and startup law, whether it's you know speaking on podcasts like this or whether it's even taking one-on-one -on -one coffees with law students. If my schedule permits, I always try to make it a priority because I remember having those questions and I remember having those concerns and how uh, incredibly uh, reassuring and helpful it was to be able to talk to someone about these things. Um, and I want to be able to do that for other people. So anytime I, I get those requests, I try to go and help. And I know a lot of my colleagues in practice, anytime they get a request, so long as their schedule is permitting and there isn't a court date scheduled, uh, <laughs> they try to do their best to, uh, to provide that support as well. It's a, it's a really incredible community. We're very lucky to be a part of law. It's such a challenge to get into. And it's 
uh, a really difficult process to get through law school and to get through the bar exams and the accreditation processes and become a lawyer. But once you do become uh, a lawyer, I mean, even once you enter law school, really, you're a part of a, a supportive, loving, intelligent, and uh, incredibly inspiring community. And I'm grateful for that all the time. And I hope uh, anyone who becomes a part of our community is also uh, appreciative of really how incredible it is. Well, I think that's a wonderful, inspirational note to end on. Uh, I know I'm, I'm very grateful, and I think I speak for all of our listeners today when we say thank you so much for sharing all of your, uh, your knowledge and wisdom with us today on The Law School Show. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks so much, Ryan. Really appreciate it. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.